As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Allocation Disorder. I am Sam Stasekul. He is Paul Tenorio. And this is your favorite podcast about Major League Soccer. Sorry, we were talking about Round Ball Rock, the John Tesh classic. It got sidetracked. There's an SNL sketch. You should go check it out. It's pretty funny. I couldn't stop laughing for about three minutes before the show because of that sketch. Anyway, we're off to a weird start already. Paul, how's it going, man? <laughs> you know, I, I, um, I'm always amazed at, uh, where you take our intros and outros. And today, you know, I think, you know what? Actually, you're carrying things over well from the way we ended the last episode to the way we're beginning this episode. Yeah. We're on a, did we're you on get any road. Arby's or what? <laughs> I did, I did not have the meats. No. Okay. <laughs> Me either. Full disclosure. <laughs> Arby's, if you want to sponsor our show, uh, I don't think anyone would notice. But, you know, like, we're open to advertisements. Anyway, we're also open to talk about uh, CBA negotiations because a lot of that is happening in MLS. That's sort of dominated many of the storylines this week. We're also going to talk about Toronto FC making a surprising coaching hire, uh, getting Chris Chris Armis uh, a few months after he was fired by the New York Red Bulls. He's headed to BMO Fields to coach TFC and then also staying in Canada. Canada heavy show tonight paul going north of the wall uh montreal impact are no longer uh they are now club club de foot montreal cf montreal um it's you know i don't know we'll talk about it more i kind of i'm kind of into it weirdly i don't know it's i'm a i have weird taste you love club we'll talk more about that later you do don't make fun of club foots you jerk (laughs) anyway wow Edit that out. <laughs> CBA. Let's get into it. Um, MLS and the MLSPA have been going back and forth. We talked, I think, a little bit about this last week because MLS delivered its offer, its first offer for an amended CBA about a week after it invoked force majeure. As we sit here recording on Thursday evening, the MLSPA has still yet to respond to said offer. Um, the league, of course, basically said no pay cuts in 2021, uh, but we want to tack two years onto the end of the CBA. Um, because the union hadn't responded, MLS commissioner Don Garber decided that he was going to come out and speak to the media on Tuesday night and essentially pressure, apply some pressure to the MLSPA to say, hey guys, uh, can you respond? We're working in a 30-day window here, and if that 30-day window expires, we don't have any intent of negotiating beyond it. Um, MLS has the right to unilaterally rip up the CBA at the end of that 30-day window. Um, the union was sort of taken aback by that comment in particular and by other just the fact that Garber was out in public talking about the proposal and the deal. Their executive director, Bob Foose, he came out and responded with a press conference of his own. We had a little press conference tit for tat, which for you and I, Paul, I mean, geez, when I got into this 
profession, I was like, I need some commissioner union executive back and forth, back to back day conference calls. That's, I mean, this is the stuff we dream about, right? You know, Sam, I, I think that, uh, you wrote a very poignant story at the beginning of uh, this whole pandemic about you know your previous job or the job you were working when you were freelancing and how the first story you broke you were scrubbing toilets in the bathroom when it happened and I feel like <laughs> no that was that was a different story I didn't break it was a feature story it was a big feature story that I, that I, I was feel proud like you of. were yearning yeah. for those toilet scrubbing days yesterday Man. while you were writing a, a, another CBA story we now have a CBA splash page. With like a dozen yeah, stories that's where this that is we've at. covered o- over the last 12 months. Just in case you want to do some light reading, <laughs> you can catch up. Um, at any rate, Bob Foos, he, uh, he went on, on his conference call and basically said, I don't know what Don Garber's talking about with this deadline. I don't know if he misspoke. I believe the direct quote was, Don's not a lawyer. <laughs> so he didn't know if he misspoke or if he was just making a threat in public that they had not communicated to the MLSPA in their own private communication. Um, and he was essentially like, I don't know why the league would say that they're going to stop negotiating on January 28th. We don't even know when preseason's going to open. We don't know when the season's going to begin. Uh, MLS is insisting on mid-March. Um, you know, in past CBA negotiations, the parties have continued on talks in good faith during preseason uh, and then signed a deal just a few days before the season is supposed to start. So the union's like, why can't we do that again if we see fit? Um, that seems, I don't know. I, I don't know what the answer to that question is <laughs> if you're the league. Um, I don't know if there's really a reasonable one. So they're not really taking, I think it's fair to say that they're not taking that deadline all that seriously or they're at least presenting that. As, as such in public. So we have an argument about a deadline. We haven't even gotten to the substance of this deal yet and what the players think about it. They don't like it. They don't like extending the CBA by two years. They think that they sacrificed more than enough in 2020. Uh, you know, one of the things that Foose kept referencing was, you know, the 2020 losses that the league keeps talking about, that $1 billion number that they keep throwing around, which by the way, we don't have any, no one has any way of verifying. That's just the league, you know, they're not sharing their books. I don't, they're not sharing them with us. I don't know if they're sharing them with the union, if they're forced to, um, for this type of CBA negotiation. But Foos is saying that $1 billion number, that was accounted for when they redid the CBA the first time last June. The 2020 losses have already been accounted for in the CBA. So any concessions that the players make this time around, those are for 2021. And that's that. It's not for what happened in the past. And one thing, Paul, that he said kind of really stuck out to me. And I think it's kind of getting at the heart of the issue, right? And what he said is the question that he keeps coming back to as the union leader is, is this force majeure an effort to amend the CBA? Is that financial opportunism from the league or is it actually out of financial necessity? And I'll kick it to you here, man. Like, what do you think the answer to that question is? I think it's more opportunism than it is necessity. Let's let's be clear here. And I think Foos made another pretty strongly worded assertion yesterday when he said, you know, these MLS owners are not just billionaires. They are some of the richest people in the country. And it's worth noting because many of these owners have actually seen their net worth increase during the course of this pandemic. Many of these owners are not hurting financially right now during this pandemic. And the league itself has said on the record during these discussions that they are capable of taking on the short-term hurt of this pandemic. But in return for taking on that short-term hurt of their business, of which they are the owner, they would like the employees to give something back, right? They want the players to take on some of that financial hurt as well. And and so when you look at it through that lens, I think it's clear that they're saying we don't want to take on as much of this as we are and so we need you know we can take we can look at this pandemic where we are right now and say we are justifiably able to ask for something more from the players. And and so it's opportunism in that sense. Do I think that the owners have lost a lot of money? Yes. Do 
the owners lose money on Major League Soccer every single year of its existence? For the most part, yes. There are some teams who make money, but many of them don't. Um, that was another point brought up by Foos. You know, MLS may have lost $1 billion, but a chunk of that $1 billion was lost that they were ar- already going to make in 2020 or already going, going to take in 2020. So, you know, I find it hard um, to see the league's viewpoint in the sense that I don't think that this is a a fair trade. I don't think it's a fair offer. Um I think they know that it's worth far more than what they're saying it's worth and that the real benefit to it has nothing to do with the pandemic and so much more to do with the massive impact it would have on the growth of the league, on the the bargaining of of multiple CBAs to come and on um the the manner in which the league grows its spending after the most important event for this league and for the sport in this country since 1994 you know that is what's at stake by extending the cba just by two years and, and the league knows that just as well as as we do or the players do yep sam i i guess from from my my question to you sam would be like do you see do you see the owners looking at a lockout as benefiting them by saving costs, like by putting a hard deadline and saying we will, you know, we will um, blow up the CBA at this deadline and lock the players out? Do they do they see that as a benefit to save costs by not having to pay players for X number of months, or do you think they're just trying to leverage as much of a long term benefit as they can in a negotiation and hope that they don't get to a work stoppage? Um. I mean, I think it's the second, but I also think that if there was a work stoppage, it wouldn't be about saving costs in the short term, right? It would be about getting those those savings on the back end through extra years or whatever else they might decide they want at a future date. So I think if there is a work stoppage, it'll be because they want that. I mean, they said it in their offer, right? They don't need to have a quote, right? By saying we're not going to cut salary in 21, they're saying we can sustain the short term hit of COVID. Right. And I mean, I don't know if they want to go to war over 26 and 27 and renegotiate the CBA. If I'm a player, I don't feel good about that at all. Right. And I'm saying to the owners, like, you know what? Like, no, like I'm, I already went to bat for you last year. I already gave, I already did my part last season. And then me, one of out of me and, and every four or five of my teammates picked up COVID over the course of the year, right? To play games in front of empty stadiums. Um, if I'm an international player, maybe I didn't see my family for months on it. They made real sacrifices, non-financial, just like life sacrifices to get the season done last year. And now you're, you're coming back. Meanwhile, right? You're launching this under 22 young money initiative, right? So you're spending money elsewhere. You're still making signings, right? But then you're turning around and crying poverty to me and saying, I need to take more cuts, but it's okay. We can handle this in the short term. You just got to give us some back at the back end. I'm like, well, no, that's just really disingenuous to me. And Paul, to your point about billionaires and hundred millionaire owners uh, increasing their net worth. I did a little research last night and I just want to mention this. I, Forbes has these lists of of billionaires that they publish every year, and they actually have a real-time billionaire list where they track the net worth of all of these people. And it just so happened that their 2020 list came out right as the pandemic was shutting things down back in March, right? So, it's a really good data point for pre-pandemic and what's happened since. And there are 10 MLS owners or MLS owners' families on that list, and eight of the 10 saw their net worth rise. Most of them rose significantly to the point where the average increase, um, even when accounting for the, for the two, two guys that saw their net worth go down, even when accounting for those two, the average increase across the 10 was $1.4 billion in net worth from the start of the pandemic to now, to yesterday, Wednesday, January 13th. That $1.4 billion, I mean, that's $400 million more than what the league claims it lost in 2020, right? They can afford to continue to pay the players. And, and so if I'm a player, like I might try and put my line, my, or not, I'm butchering this. 
I might, <laughs> I might draw that line in the sand and say, go ahead, lock me out. That being said, everyone's got bills to play and, and everyone's got, got things that they need to take care of. So if push comes to shove and they got to do what they got to do, they got to do what they got to do. Um, and that's that. I do think though, Paul, the MLS is leaving. They're missing out on an opportunity here. And this is something that we talked about on this very show 10 months ago when this was all starting up. Um, can you expand on that for the listeners and, and give kind of a take of it on it too? Well, Fu said something yesterday on his call that, that was both correct and also concerning in the sense that, you know, if MLS owners wanted to cut back the amount of spending that they would cut back, and we've done the math before, when you look at 100 to $110 million spread out over seven years across every single team in MLS, it amounts to 205 seasons of play. And if you take that 205 seasons and you, you know, you divide the 110 million by that 205 seasons, it's about $530,000 per team. And that's, and that's being generous, right? That's, that's, that's without going into kind of the, the deep, you know, let's just, let's just call it 550,000, $530,000 per team. There's a really easy way. Can you give me a cent? Can you break that down to the penny, please? Yeah. This is good audio content. There, there's a really easy way to save that kind of money per year, right? Spend less of your discretionary funds. A huge chunk of what MLS teams spend is al- is is discretionary money, right? Targeted allocation money, which is now all discretionary, and designated players. And as you mentioned, there is a new discretionary fund coming into Major League Soccer, which is the Under-22 initiative. And so Foos rightly pointed out, if if the concern is 100 to $110 million of savings— if that's what's so important to you, then you can save it by electing to spend less discretionary money. And he's absolutely right. But here's the thing. The the league has an opportunity in a very soft global market to spend more money and to make a real impact and change, continue to change the trajectory of the league, the reputation of the league by bringing in good players on lower prices and free transfers from pl- from places where they're really suffering and from where many of the owners are not billionaires and some of the richest people in the world. So you look at France, for example, which had a TV deal blow up and is seeing a number of teams having to offload players in order to try to save the club. Look at South America, where prices are dropping on players, where you can you can sign players on friendly deals, whether it's loans with options to buy or buying players on lower numbers. There are a lot of deals to be had. Instead of taking advantage of that market and saying, hey, let's all go push and spend more money, MLS is spending its time focused on cutting costs and and where can they scale back. Now, that scaling back hasn't been discretionary money to this point, but there certainly hasn't been an increase. There hasn't been a distinct increase beyond the under-22 initiative, which We've talked about this before. I think is a, a really good initiative and a really smart initiative, but I also think it is, you know, another bucket, right? It's just another restricted area where you're saying, okay, based on age, this arbitrary figure, you're you're allowed to sign or not sign players. Um, you know, this is a good example of a time when it would behoove the league to add another DP spot. Maybe don't put restrictions on the under two twenty two initiative, where if you have three overage dps or non-young dps then you can't you can only sign one under 22 player there are so many examples of this and i just think the league is is missing out on that um and and i think it's a real missed opportunity for the league in a, in a transfer market that's starting to certainly pay more attention to what's happening in major league soccer yeah for sure i agree with pretty much all of that but i'm going to do something here that my wife really hates it when I do, and that's play devil's advocate um, on behalf of the owners. Now, we've talked a lot about the guys at the top half or the top end, the richest owners in MLS and how their net worth has increased, or even if it hasn't, like they're still doing just fine. There are owners and teams that aren't quite as high up who might have might be feeling the effects of the pandemic in a more real way, right? So that's one. Right. So if we're, if we're out here saying, Oh, MLS, loosen the rules, spend a little bit more money, take advantage of a soft market to close that gap a little bit faster. Not everyone's going to be able to do that. Right. So that's the first thing. 
The second thing is, you know, we mentioned this point about discretionary money. And while that's true over the long run, like 100%, you could start to spend less discretionary money. A lot of that money is spoken for in 2021, right? It's not like teams have been going out and spending a ton on DPs this offseason or even TAM signings. Um, and a lot of the players that are DPs or TAM signings were on guaranteed contracts for 2022, even before the pandemic began. So a lot of money is already accounted for. Um and on that note, if you spend less on discretionary players, the league will get worse, right? You will have less quality, even in a market that's a little bit down worldwide, where maybe you can spend a little bit less for the for the same level of quality. Even with that, the, the league wouldn't be quite as good. And that's a real sacrifice. And that's something that the players would feel in the long run, right? Because if the league gets better and more popular, then it'll bring in more money and eventually more of that will will trickle down to the players. So that's my sort of devil's advocate there. What, what you you want to respond? I, I want to make a point. I just want to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is kind of what the, what the league is asking for from the players here and how we got to this point. And, you know, we need to point out that this is, this is the league's position is they are giving the players what they wanted by not asking them or, or by paying them what they're contractually obligated to pay them. It's not by being like, hey, we're doing you a favor and paying you 100% of your salary. They are contractually obligated to pay 100% of the salary, right? But they're saying, we are not going to impose cuts on you or ask for more cuts on your salary in return for extending the CBA by two years. And by doing that, it's a very fair and equitable deal. And I do, I do just want to point out that what the players gave last year included what are essentially pay cuts for the player pool, not just this year, but every single year of the CBA to come. So doing a little bit of math, if you look at what the cap was supposed to be and what it actually is this year, next year, 2023, 2024, and 2025, you'll see the difference. It's $605,000 difference per team this year. So that is $16.335 million in savings for major Hold on one second. Can I just say I love that this has turned into a Paul does math podcast. <laughs> I hate math, and and I, I but I think it's important. Paul to is point like out. Paul has got he's got a calculator out right now. He's got his glasses on. They got the little piece of tape in the middle. He's wearing a pocket protector. Um, it's like it's been a pretty remarkable why, transformation over the course of the twenty minutes of the show. Why do you hate on on people who do math? Okay, they run the world. And they Listen, make a man, lot more money than we do. Let me tell I you was something. studying for a test like for the last two weeks. I know all about math right now. There were no calculators allowed. Okay. I was honing those skills. I didn't use calculators either. I used Excel. And I mean, that's a calculator. The formulas in Excel. The point being that <laughs> when you do that every single year, and thank you, Sam, for calling me out on doing math. But when you do that across every single year, and in the last year of the CBA, because they extended it by a year that wouldn't have existed, I did a little bit of math again and guesstimating on my own and took the increase from 2019 to 2020 with a new CBA and, and just replicated that. It was about showing your, you're not just doing math. You're really showing your work. <laughs> I really am. The point is, is that the savings is about $100 million, not counting the pay cuts from last year, not counting the 70% cut in the bonus pool from last year, not counting cutting in half the revenue share agreement in the first year of the yeah. uh, revenue share in the, so and that, that's $100 million, million just that in salary cap. And that's, that's that they've already clawed back from the initial negotiations last February to the subsequent negotiations last June. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. So okay. that that 100 million is already accounted for and it includes what are essentially decreases in money available to the player pool. And Sam, you and I know from our reporting that 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 decrease is costing players money, right? We know that some GM said we're going to pick up fewer options because we can't have the the normal nominal increases of contracts year over year because the cap stayed flat. We know that the league is making other decisions that we haven't yet reported that we're not going to report here on the podcast. But, but it affects, it affects free agent money too. It affects right? free agent money. It affects Generation Adidas. It affects homegrown players. It affects everything because all of your contract decisions are based on your cap. So a homegrown player that might be ready to get a new contract is probably not going to get that new contract because it makes more sense to keep them off the budget as a homegrown. And the moment they sign that new bigger deal, they're not off budget anymore. You know, it affects the 
the player who's, um, I don't know, the first or second player off your bench who was going to jump from 325 this year or last year to 385 this year. And instead, they say, no, 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 we're not going to pick up the option. We'll let you go into reentry. And, and hey, maybe we'll even sign you in reentry back and renegotiate a deal with you because we want you back. We just can't afford you back at the uh, at the, the pay bump that we were going to give you before. So I just want to point out that, you know, the idea that players aren't taking cuts this year is semantics. They've already taken that cut for 2021 and 2022 and 2023 and 2024 and 2025. It's a good point. It's an important point. I'm glad we're discussing it. Um, <laughs> you want me to do more math? No, I'm done yes, with my math. I want you to drag show. that whiteboard you know, that you have in that office stashed away. I know you have it in there on wheels. Where is it, Paul? Just show me. Show me the whiteboard. It's right over here in the closet, right to my right. I just pulled out a whiteboard, literally. Um, Paul, you made an interesting point. We're getting a little weird on this show, but you made an interesting point or asked me an interesting question, I think earlier today, when you said a lockout, in your opinion, over the extreme long term would actually benefit the players. Can you... Just like, just explain that. Cause I think it's, I think it, I, I think I kind of agree with you, but I think it's a discussion worth having. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24 7 US based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Well, I think the the well, first of all, I think the reputation for the players is that they get pushed around in these negotiations. That's the way it's been for the at least for the two CBA talks I've been a part of. Though last year, the last CBA was they showed was, they showed some solidarity last they year. They did, they did, and it really you know the funny thing is the attitude in the the in February and March the, when the CBA was originally agreed to was hey this was a better partnership than it's ever been mm-hmm. between the the union and the and the <laughs> that got league. turned on its head fast and man did that change quickly right <laughs> and they they did stick to their guns a little bit more before MLS is back um, and I thought you know came together. And I think we're seeing that even more again now, but I I just think that it would send a message to the owners, you know, that, Hey, you, you don't get to just decide that, you know, you can invoke force majeure and that you can push, push us around and force us into um, agreeing to something that is really going to impact the long-term health of the players union. Right. Because, by pushing back a negotiation of free agency, what would essentially be three years from what was initially negotiated back in February of last year is significant. By giving the league the leverage to negotiate um, and to put their media deal in sync with the CBA is a massive loss for the players. To push the next CBA negotiation to more than a year after the World Cup so they don't need mm-hmm. to worry about a labor negotiation in and around that tournament when they need that momentum is huge. And I think that the the owners know that they cannot have a long lockout. That right now there is momentum for Major League Soccer. There is growth. And they would be the only league in the world that's not playing. The only league in the world that's not playing would be Major League Soccer with a lockout. How long can they take that hit? And well... You know, that would be the question is how stubborn would the the owner – because if this is a lockout that lasts until May or June or July and all of a sudden the vaccine is – you know, more people are being vaccinated and things are starting to open up, it's a lot harder at that point for the owners to be talking about force majeure. And I think the players could sustain until then. But if we start getting to September, October, November and the owners still aren't caving – 
yeah. you know, it gets a little bit more difficult. At a certain point, the players are going to need the paychecks again. But if, they, if they're if they locked out, they can go play in other leagues. So they can go get those paychecks elsewhere if they really need to. Um, although there are a bunch of different logistical and technical hurdles that they would have to jump through for and that. And some players won't have leagues to go play play for yeah, elsewhere. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and if they do, maybe, maybe the money isn't anything and how that works during a pandemic, I do not know. Um, it would be difficult is the point. When you ask how long can a lockout last, well, that question depends on how long, when the lockout begins, right? Um, if they started on January 29th, they can go for six weeks, no problem, you know? Like four weeks, no problem. Season still starts early, mid-May. Nobody has really missed MLS that much at that point, and maybe they can get what they want, right? Um, but, and this is, this is what Foose brought up that I thought was really interesting is he's floating this theory on the call yesterday, specifically for us to do what we're doing right now, by the way, which is talk about it in public. Um, he's floating this theory that he's like, I can't even comprehend why the league would say that there's a hard deadline. The only thing that I can think of that makes sense is that, you know, by getting it done quickly, like they have to get it done quickly. Otherwise, if they wait, then things are going to slowly get better and their case is going to become weaker and weaker and they're going to have less leverage and maybe force majeure will not even become an issue and they won't be able to do anything, right? And so that's his theory that he's floating. Now, I think there's some legitimacy to that. I would also say that I don't think things are really going to get better as fast as he's making it out to be. Even if, you know, half of Americans get vaccinated by, what are they saying now? June for that? I don't even know. Full stadiums aren't going to be a thing in 2021, I do not think. And if they are, it won't be until the fall, the earliest, right? So the financial hit is still going to be substantial for MLS in 21. So even if things are getting better, which I think we all hope that they will, um, it's going to be, there's going to be a lag time between things getting better and the league getting better. So I don't know how much I buy into that theory. It is interesting though. And if the players can sustain a lockout, I mean, they'll win that PR battle 100%, right? The owner, I think the way the the public is now, like we used to, I think we used to in this country when there were labor discussions between leagues and players, I think people used to side with the leagues a lot more. Oh, these greedy millionaire players, right? I think that sort of temperature has changed a bit, especially over the last 10 months, Right. Where and, and especially in MLS, where not everyone's a millionaire that's playing the game, right? Some of these guys are just making regular money like me and Paul. Um, and, you know, people side with the players more, I think, now and I think in MLS. So, they would be winning that PR battle. It'd be interesting. I hope it doesn't come to that um, because I think it would be damaging unless it's like a short stoppage, in which case I don't really think it would do that much, that much, have that much of an impact. But I don't know, man. Hopefully, we don't get there. Hopefully, we don't have to talk about this that much longer. Well, Sam, as we have talked about it a lot, a lot, a lot. I know. And we've written about it a lot. Thousands and so, and I'm going to throw something words. your way. Okay, now you are mm-hmm. a mediator oh. between the union and the league. You okay. know the union is not going to want to tack two extra years on the CBA. You know the owners are not going to want to walk away from negotiations without being given something in return. Mm-hmm. What can the what can the players give back? That would that would be one year would be a deal. What would make this a deal? I I don't know. I don't know if the players would be willing to give back one year, right? Like Foos said, you know, we're still doing our process, right? They're still talking to the bargaining committee, which is made up of three players from every team. The bargaining committee is talking to their teammates. They're going back and forth. They're figuring it out what they're going to offer. And one of the things that he said is that you know we're we're one of the things we're evaluating is if there are concessions we can make that are fair, right? And so we'll we'll see what they counter with. I mean, if I'm the union, I don't think giving another year is something I would be interested in, let alone two. Um, so I don't know what those next level of concessions would be, and, and I don't know, thing- and I don't, I don't know that there are any next level concessions that would satisfy the league. That's the real thing. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I can think. That would potentially be on the table that could pro- that could maybe give the league what they're looking for or some level of what they're looking for is is looping back around to a, a pretty good gain that the players got in the CBA, which was the revenue sharing agreement. 
Now, they've already cut the first year of that revenue share in half from 25% to 12.5%. And I wonder whether, and that, and by the way, that revenue share is already starting after the first 100 million above yeah, um, what the previous year yeah, was. So it's yeah. not like it's just 12%, 12.5% of, of what the league gets. But I wonder if, if that's an area where the, the players could give money back, say, okay, we're going to eliminate the revenue share in 2023 and 2024 and have it at just 12.5% in 2025 and then pick up in 2026. You're giving back significant money. You're you're making a pretty big concession. You know, maybe that's a starting point and it doesn't impact the player salaries and pockets as much as what they've already done, which is pushing the CBA back by multiple years and and by doing that flattening the growth um i don't know i mean i don't think the players would be offering that like i don't i think that was pretty i think they took a lot of pride in winning that from the league and, and starting that and that's one of the reasons why we haven't seen these battles in like the nba right because the amount of money that goes to the salary cap, and maybe it's not the NBA, I might be getting crossed up, but in some of the other North American leagues, is tied directly to basketball-related income or baseball-related income that's generated by the league. And then the players get X percent of that in whatever year in the CBA. So you don't have to negotiate things like this, right? Because if the league loses revenue, then the players lose revenue. It's tied together, right? And MLS wants to take that step, the players. And and the first step of the first part of that was that revenue sharing agreement. I don't know that I would want to try and put that toothpaste back in the tube if I'm the players. But it's it's definitely I mean, it could be a compromise. I wouldn't rule it out. But I mean, I guess the bigger question is, Sam, like, do you think the players are obligated to give something back? Should the players no. be giving up something? Do I think they're obligated? No. I mean, Paul, you know a little bit about how I operate in these sorts of things. If you make an agreement, you make an agreement. Like, if, if MLS all of a sudden, like, and this is the main reason I think this, if MLS all of a sudden takes off in 2023, three years before the CBA ends, do you think the league is going to turn around and go to the players? Hey, guys, like, we just won the figurative lottery. Like, this is great. This is way more than we were expecting. Uh, all of a sudden, we're selling out 70,000 seats all over the league, and sponsors just can't stop giving us money, and we're rich. We're filthy rich, all of a sudden. Do you think they're going to turn around and say, um, yeah, we should give some of this to our to our players. You know, we should rip up the CBA and renegotiate it and do all of those things. No. Like, would they spend more money on their rosters? Yeah, probably. Would it be proportionate to to what what that what those increases, those hypothetical increases, would be? Probably not, right? Like, so if they're going to keep the gains for themselves, like, why should why should they ask anyone to take on the like when they take the risk, right? And those risks go bad. Why should anyone else have to help them out? Yeah, I mean, I think another another way to put that too is let's say you are an owner toward the bottom of Major League Soccer. And you can't really sustain these losses that, you know, uh, a Kroenke or... Um, that's, then that's a different story, right? But, but let's just say you're that owner. When you go and sell your team, let's say, let's say, let's use Flavio Augusta de Silva, right? You paid $40 million Orlando to come City into owner. the league. Orlando City owner. You paid a $40 million expansion fee. You, you have financed, privately financed the stadium. So you've put some money into that, right? You have some debt that you're carrying on that stadium and you know, you've decided it's time to sell. Let's say you sell the team for $400 million and you are talking about a, you know, somewhere in the range of $300 million profit since you bought the team in 2015, right? Or since it came into major league soccer in 2015. Are you giving any of that? Are you giving any of that money to any of the players? Is is Kaká getting that money? Do do any of the players have an out like that right now? You know, like if Flavio says I can't sustain these losses, I'm selling the team and he finds that buyer, even if it's a $325 million sale and he's making $250 million or $225 million on his investment in Orlando City right now. You know, does that 20 or 30 million dollars in in losses last year really hurt at that point? You know, when you when you're yeah, maybe it hurts in the sense that you could have had two hundred and fifty. It hurts, but he's still winning. Million. But he's still, but he's still winning, winning, man. And yeah. none of that money is going to the players, right? None yeah. of the players have that option. So yeah, 
It, it it does. It just changes the conversation. And you're 100 percent right that, you know, I think it also speaks to the tone of these negotiations. Right. And why the union is so perturbed by the way the league is approaching this, because what the league is doing is trying to apply as much public pressure as possible on the, the players to negotiate within a 30 day window and get a deal done in a 30 day window, which, by the way, never happens with CBAs. It certainly did not happen with MLS's back. And it is usually in CBA negotiations, the league that is slow playing things and kicking the can down the road and then trying to push through everything in the final week of negotiations. When I first started on the MLS beat covering Orlando City full time, you know, my coverage in the week leading up to Orlando City's first ever game in MLS was, is there going to be a game? Because the negotiations came down to two days before the season opened. Yeah. The bowl was full of cereal, but would there be milk, you know? Yeah, exactly. And I just think <laughs> I just think that we have to remember that this is, you know, a poker game a little bit. You know, and, and instead of being the poker player who's sitting game there quietly behind their cards yeah. and, and not saying anything. The league is that loud, brash player at the table who's just trying to use bravado to get what they want, to figure out what's going to happen, to force what they want to happen at the table to happen. Paul, I think of you as a quiet poker player. Do I have that Do I have that right? I'm as quiet as I can be, which is not – I mean, I, I'm this not is, a quiet this person. Is, this is going to shock you that I'm not that way. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know. Can't stop running my mouth. But I did want to ask you about that. Because this is new, this negotiating in public. This isn't something that we've really seen before. And Foose commented on that. And this will be the last thing we say with the CBA because we've got like 40 minutes on this at this point. We do have other things we want to talk about. Um, but what do you make of, of the league's strategy to put this in public? Why do you think it's happening? What do you think the objective is? Do you agree with it? Disagree with it? I, I agree with it in that I think that I am being a little bit cynical here. I think that the league's intention is to lock the players out. And I think that they would like to put the responsibility on the players. I think when the lockout occurs that they want to be able to say, hey, look, we told you. We came out. We practically begged them to respond to us. And we weren't hiding that we had gotten them this offer. We weren't hiding that we hadn't heard back. We said to them in the press, you need more urgency. We need a response. And, hey, it's not on us. We gave them a chance. That's where I think this is going. That's what I think the strategy is. So for what the strategy is, is it the right move? Yes. Will it be the right strategy if they lock the players out? I don't know. But that's where I think this is going. I guess it depends on what they want, right? I think locking the players out on January 29th would be so cynical and it would create so much anger that the players, it would be like a situation where they, they're like, they would be racing to strike before they got locked out. It would be like, you can't fire me. I quit sort of deal. Cause they would be so mad. Um, but I don't know. That will be interesting to see how it plays out. We got two weeks left um, before the quote unquote deadline that maybe isn't a deadline. Um, so we'll see. We'll be updating you um, on the site and on the show as we go. Let's take a quick break. Come back. Talk Toronto FC, Chris Armis and Club de Foot, Montreal. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Bonjour, and welcome back to Allocation Disorder. That's right. I'm speaking terrible French. Why? Because we're going to talk about Montreal. But first, their Canadian rivals, Toronto FC, they made some news on Thursday. Hiring Chris Armis is head coach. I think this is a move... Uh, the Toronto FC fan base wasn't that excited about it. I'll just say that. Uh, Armis was fired by the Red Bulls in September. Uh, he took over the Red Bulls about two years earlier, summer of 2018, after Jesse Marsh moved to Leipzig. He did great that first half season, 12-3-3. Three and three. 
better record than Marsh had in 2018. Red Bulls won the Supporter Shield, uh, set the record for most points in a single season that was then broken the very next year. Um, took took that record from Toronto FC, by the way. Fun little side note there. But lost in the playoffs in the Eastern Conference Final to Atlanta United. First leg down in Atlanta. Lost 3 nothing. Armist decided to not press in that game. Pressing was like the trademark tactic for the Red Bulls. Still is. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of a long, slow end for him in New York. Um, he talked a lot pretty openly about wanting to like kind of add another club to the bag, so to speak, develop an alternative style of play besides pressing more possession heavy. Um, and it felt to me, Paul, like he was kind of caught in two minds for most of his tenure as Rebels head coach. And what resulted was a team that sometimes pressed, sometimes tried to play, sometimes tried to do a little bit of both and was never really good at any one thing. Um, they did lose a lot of talent when Armas was head coach which is worth noting. Um, they did not spend any money when Armas was head coach, which is worth noting. They still made the playoffs in 2019. And when he got fired, they were 3-4-2 and two in 2020. So it's not like they had a terrible record. They'd only scored seven goals in those nine games, and they were better without him than they were with him. Um, but Toronto, they lose Greg Vanny. He decides to walk and go to the LA Galaxy, one of the biggest clubs in the league. And they poach a guy who had been fired by a team that's significantly smaller in stature and not as good as they are. What do you make of all of this? Well, I think I want to start with what you were talking about with Chris Armas at Red Bull. And I'm going to start this off by just saying my philosophy on soccer, what I like to play, what I was raised to play, and what I enjoyed Joga Bonito. Yeah, I like... (laughs) I like playing soccer, man. I like the tiki-taka, uh, keep the ball on the ground, play possession. Um, yeah, you and everyone else in the world. That, that's you know? that's how, I, how I came up. And I've never really been an advocate of or for pressing. It just – for a long time, I just didn't really see the benefit. Um, if you sit down with Jesse Marsh for any period of time – he will preach to you about playing against the ball and counterpressing. And this is the way to play. And this is why it's the way to play. And what you walk away from those conversations realizing is how much you have to be bought in on that system to be a part of Red Bull. It requires it a is, lot of running. It is everything that they care about. It is how they think about the game. It's how they sign players. It's how they analyze everything from the top down. And so the fact that Chris Armis was having an, an, an identity crisis within himself of what Red Bull is and what they want to be and what he is and what he wants to be is a problem in Red Bull's world. There is only one way in the Red Bull world, and he didn't want to follow that one there way. There are and variations on that way. Not really. I mean, Leipzig, not really, can, Leipzig can play some soccer, man. Yes, like, but not the type of soccer that Chris was playing or wanted to play. It's not about possession ever. Now, when you get the ball, what you do with the ball, you know, when you, I did the piece with Tyler Adams where he talked about the difference. You know, maybe it's not getting from one end of the field to the other in eight seconds anymore. Maybe there's a little bit more nuance to it, but it's still a vertical game. It's still about counter-pressing. The the basics of what Red Bull is are still the same. I don't disagree with Chris Armas, and I don't think you do either, that having another way to play is important because we saw the rest of the world, there are no playoffs at the end of the season that determine a champion, right? Right? And we, what we saw year after year with Red Bull was them running out of gas for the playoffs. They were well, out of not gas. Not, not just running out of gas for the playoffs, but other teams would say, okay, you have the ball. Beat right. us. And, and they so couldn't they, do it. He, he wanted to crack that problem, right? And so I get it. I just think that it, the moment that happened, the decision makers at the top of Red Bull were going to start casting their eyes elsewhere. That's what I think. Now, 
the big question I think that Toronto has to answer and had to answer in this hiring process is, was it Armis's fault that Red Bull took a step back? Or was it Red Bull's fault with their lack of investment that they took a step back? And Sam, I don't know where you fall on this. I was a little bit more of a blame Red Bull more than Armis person. I don't know where you fell on that spectrum. Um, I mean, I think if you had to, like, if I had to pick a number, 1 to 10 or 1 to 100, whatever, 1 being Armis, 10 being Red Bull, I'd probably fall closer to the Red Bull side. But I think Armis deserves some blame. That team couldn't attack at all, like at all. They looked disjointed. He couldn't find a way to make Kaku work. Um, with players regressed under him. Um, those are not good things when you're a coach. That's not, that, those are not marks you want on your resume. That being said, they still made the playoffs every year that he was involved with the team. They made the playoffs in 2020, right? So it's not like they were terrible, right? And the talent, I mean, they were like, Paul, not to, the talent they had at striker the last two years was really bad. Like, worst in the league by a lot. Bad. And, you know, like, uh, the the team, the other team that might be, like, second worst in that position in MLS is probably Real Salt Lake. And they found a made a way to work with a box-to-box midfielder who does karate kicks for fun and, like, finishes, like, nobody's business in the mere crylock, right? Um, it's hard to score goals when you don't have goal scorers. And the Red Bulls didn't have goal scorers. So, you know, it's not all enormous by any means. Some of it is, though. And the, the I wrote a piece with Josh Cloak, who's our athletic colleague based in Toronto, and he covers TFC and the Maple Leafs up there. And so I wrote a piece today with him. It'll be coming out on Friday. By the time you're listening to this, it will probably be published on the website. And, you know, we, we teamed up on it. And Armis, in his press conference today, the introductory press conference they had, he was talking about pressing. He's talking about energy. And like, that's how he, that's like his driving principle. All those things that you were saying about Jesse Marsh and Red Bull, he was talking about. And Ali Curtis was bought in and he's really excited. He's saying, and this whole thing is very interesting to me because Ali Curtis, you'll remember, was the Red Bull sporting director once upon a time. His first move as Red Bull sporting director was to fire Mike Pecky after two seasons of Pecky being in charge, one of which when Pecky won the first trophy in club history. Club legend as a player comes in, he does that as a coach, then Peck, then Curtis fires him. They have that town hall where everyone's screaming at them. <laughs> By the way, incredible. Go find video of that if, if, you, if you don't know plan. him. The 300-page plan. And the first thing he does, he fires Pecky and he brings in Jesse Marsh. Jesse Marsh brings in Chris Armis. These guys have a long history together. But that history isn't all smooth, right? Jesse Marsh, depending on who you talk to, may have kneecapped Ollie Curtis in that job after the 2017 season. Um, Ollie Curtis left there. The circumstances have never really been officially explained um, by anyone involved. But depending on who you talk to, Jesse engineered that, right? And so you would think, oh, would Ollie Curtis go back to somebody who's like one of Jesse's best friends and was his right-hand man when that whole thing, that weird thing went down with Rebel? That caught me by surprise, personally. Um, But I don't know. I think it's going to be really interesting for Toronto, like to transition from Vanny, who is a pretty methodical, like build from the back kind of coach, to what seems like it's going to be a totally different style under Armis. Um, I don't know if they have the players for it, but I'm super, super intrigued to see some of these young kids make a go of it. Cause Toronto FC have some good young players. Ralph Preso, he's one that you probably haven't heard of. He played in some games for them down the stretch last year. He's good. He's a good player. He'll probably play a lot under Armis in the midfield. So I'm really curious to see how, what Armis does with those academy kids. Cause Toronto wants to play more of them. That's like a big thing for them. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how it goes because the expectations internally, at least, I don't know about externally, but internally, MLS Cup 2021. Those are the expectations. It's MLS Cup every single season. They still have a DP to sign, right? We'll see what that is. Um, but, you know, Josh Cloak, he was in the press conference. He was telling me and he put this in the story. He's like, that DP is going to be somebody who can fly. 
it's going to be somebody who can really run, has a great engine, probably younger, um, and can really play this pressing style and kind of maybe lead that. I don't know if Michael Bradley fits that, if Pozuelo fits that, if Josie Altidore fits that. So I think there's going to be an adjustment here if that's what they're going to. Um, and that's sort of what Armas was saying today. So we'll see. I think also we should just point out, and you kind of alluded to this at the very beginning of, of talking about Armas, bare minimum, we can say with certainty, wherever you fall on Armas, it's an underwhelming hire for what Toronto FC fans wanted and what you expected Toronto to do, right? When you think of the super clubs in MLS, the biggest clubs in MLS, Toronto is one of them. And the names that started off, that we started off talking about, Patrick Vieira, you know, that's the expectation that they were going to go out and spend a, a ton of money on a coach. It wasn't going to be on a guy like Chris Armis, who had been fired by the Red Bulls, who very, came very, very, very close to being DC United's coach. And then that, that fell apart, right? Now he leaves Red Bull. He doesn't take a DC United job and he ends up in Toronto. And I think he's he's going to have to win over fans. Fair or not, they were expecting a big name, and and Armis wasn't that for them. So it, there's just so many angles yeah. that make this hire interesting. They'll, they'll probably go easier on him than Red Bulls fans did because those people can be tough. <laughs> and yeah, they really know, didn't like him by the end. No, they really didn't like him. You know, TFC fans they are Canadian, usually much nicer. So. Maybe he'll have an easier go than he did in New York. A couple of other things, though, Paul, that I, you mentioned Patrick Vieira. They did talk to Patrick Vieira. From what I was told, um, Vieira basically informed them that he's not interested in coming back to MLS at this point in his career, and he wants to continue on in Europe after he got fired by Nice uh, about a month ago. Um, so that's one. And, and I think it's important to understand the lens through which Toronto viewed this search, which is MLS Cup 2021 or bust, right? Like, it has to be this year. It has to be every year for them. And so, if you're going to do that, well, what is that? That sort of, that sort of makes it tougher to hire a coach with no experience in MLS, right? Because those guys traditionally have had a hard time coming into the league and adjusting. Or it makes it harder to hire an assistant who's never had head coaching experience, um, pluck an assistant from another MLS team or your own team and elevate him because, they don't, they don't have that kind of understanding of what it is to be a head coach. They want to shorten that adjustment period. And when you look at that pool of candidates, um, the guys who have head coaching experience in MLS, it's pretty thin, right? You have like Robin Frazier, but he's in a job. Um, it would have made sense, longtime TFC assistant, uh, but he's in a job. And the Rapids would have forced TFC to pay a ton of money. So that wasn't going to happen. Um, and then you get basically Armis, Olsen, maybe some other guys that I'm missing. Um, but Jim that pool Curtin, gets pretty thin, pretty fast. Jim Curtin, but he's under contract, right? So, and I can't, the union wouldn't have let him go for cheap after he wins coach of the year this year and leads him to the supporters shield. Like, so it's, it's hard to find those guys when you look at it through that lens and they have that history. They're energized by him. So they say, um, so it's going to be interesting. I like Chris Armas as an individual. I hope he does well from that standpoint. Um, but we'll see. Moving east to Quebec, Club de Foot, Montreal. Uh, the impact or no more. We knew that this was coming. We didn't know exactly what it would be. They have a snowflake as a logo now. Um, the impact name is, uh, is gone. Um, you know, Joey Saputo, the team owner, he, I think he said it super eloquently when he said, you know, it's hard to let go of the things that you love, but the reality is, in order to make an impact, we had to retire the impact. Paul, is that true? What do you think of this? Uh, what do you think of this rebrand? No, it's not true. I don't like this idea. <laughs> what what that, do you think of that line, though? <laughs> I mean, I think that line is almost as good as the official colors explanation, ice gray, which represents the ice flowing in all Montrealers' veins, which was Ooh. the best line of anything that came out of the day. You didn't like when they quoted Martin Luther King. Oh, that was up there too, man. It's all up. It's all rebrands are my, my favorite thing in the world because they're just packed full of BS, man. And, and here's the thing. This rebrand isn't going to help Montreal become 
more global, globally recognized. It's not going to bring people aren't going to be like, yeah, you know what, man, I am now a fan of Montreal, CF Montreal, because that sounds genuine to me. So sign me up. That's not going to happen. That's not how this works. If you want more fans in your market, win more games. Stop firing your coach every other year. Stop going crazy and doing crazy things to the referees' doors down in the locker room and win (sighs) games. That's going to make you – look at what happened when Drogba came in and they were winning. It was nuts. Look Look at what happened when they made the Champions League final. When they went to the Champions League final under Frank Klopas, the goal that happened – Incredible. Look what happened when they made the 2016 Eastern Conference Final against Toronto and they forgot how big the 18-yard box was. I mean, there's just so like it just I, Do you remember that? So I forgot that, about that. Like like look at we can go down the list of clubs that have are are rebranding and putting FC after that name as if it's going to give them some kind of like credibility. Are you I wrote kidding about this. Me? I wrote about this today too, and this piece will also come out on Friday. But I sort of went off on what you just went off on. Every single time, every time we see a team rebrand or we see an expansion team launch its identity, every single time it's, oh, well, we did this um, because, you know, we want to become more of a global brand. Do you know who you are? Do you know what league you play in? You are in MLS. MLS is a growing league. I love MLS. Holds a very special place in my heart. It is not at the point where it's like, you know what? Let's be Manchester United. No, you need to sell out your own damn stadium. Talk about putting the cart before the horse, Paul. What are they talking about? What are they talking about? We want to reach out to the 350 million francophones across the world. And if they happen to root for an MLS team, we want them to root for Montreal. And we think by calling ourselves Club de Foot Montreal and by putting a snowflake logo, like that's going to do it. And it's like, well, if they're going to root for an MLS team, they might root for you anyway, even when you're called the impact. And first of all, second of all, why do you care? Sell out your own stadium. And how do you sell out your own stadium, Paul? You said it already. It's not through a new logo. It is not through a new name. It's by being good at soccer. That's it. Be good at soccer. Run a professional operation off of the field. Montreal might be on track for that. Right. I talked to the club president today after this presentation, Kevin Gilmore. And, you know, I did a big story on Montreal about a year and a half ago. One of the things that Gilmore told me in that piece, it was funny going back and reading it this morning. He said, we have no identity. The impact have never had an identity. And he was right. He was talking about the sporting side and you hinted at it. Firing a coach every year or two, the GM, maybe he's fired, maybe he's promoted, maybe he's demoted. No one knows who's in charge. Everything's changing always. And that's sort of what he was referring to. But he also told me that the club has been minor league, even business practice wise, since they moved to MLS. And so he's trying to change all that. Is he? I don't know. I'm not in Montreal. I'm not in that front office, right? But they have some serious people in charge on the sporting side now with Olivier Renard and Thierry Henry. And Gilmore described to me a model that they want to fill. And for listeners of this podcast, it will be a familiar model. We're not going to spend as much as Atlanta United. That's what he told me. Cool. That's fine. Um, but what we are going to do is we're going to use our academy. We're going to develop players from our academy. We're going to sign young players from international. We're going to use those connections with Bologna and Syria A, which is also owned by Joey Saputo. Um, We're going to develop those young players. We are going to sell them on. And when we sell those players, we're going to turn around and take those proceeds and put them back into the roster. And we're going to win games. And cool. You have a a vision. Now, if you can fulfill that vision, then you have an identity. And that identity has nothing to do with your stupid name, your stupid logo. I shouldn't even call it stupid. I kind of like the name and the logo now. I kind of liked them before. I didn't really like the logo before. I like the name Impact. I don't dislike the rebrand, but that's not germane here. None of that stuff matters. It doesn't matter. And it's just a case of team owners and team executives saying, well, hmm, we have a problem here. We need to sell 10,000 more season tickets to get this thing up and running. How do we do that? I don't know. Let's do a rebrand. Okay. That's an easy thing that we can, it's not easy, but like, it's a thing that we can accomplish if we just put some effort in and it, and, and it, and it's sort of tricking ourselves that we're going to solve this problem. It does nothing to solve the problem. Make a good team that solves your problem. 
Look, here's the thing. Somebody somewhere convinced MLS teams that if they want to capture the same energy all of these expansion teams get when they come into a market as the new sexy thing, that they are going to have to change their name to do it. You want to you want to be not boring in your market anymore? Give yourself a new name and a new logo. Now you're new. You're cool. You're you're something neat. You can sell those tickets the way I actually does. sort of buy this, but it's because, not true. It doesn't well, work, no because Sam. because it makes people pay attention for a second, a second. But you've got to do something with so, it, and like so you have to back it up with with what you do on the field. Here's my other thing. What is the most globally recognized brand for Major League Soccer? New who? <laughs> Sam, you're ruining my chance to make a point here. What is the most uh, sorry, globally recognized out. brand? In Major League Soccer around the LA world. Galaxy. The LA Galaxy. That is not... They're not LA Galaxy FC. They are not even LAFC. The most recognized brand in the world is the LA Galaxy when it comes to Major League Soccer. That is a 1996 MLS name. It is an American Sports League name. It is not the best logo in the league. It's not a great name. It's definitely not as good of a name as Montreal Impact, and yet it resonates. And you know what? Why it's does a it brand resonate? That matters. Why does it resonate? Won because they have a history. They were good. They've been good. Well, That's why it, it matters. It, it resonates because of two things: they signed David Beckham and they won with David Beckham. That's all you yeah. need. Win. Do something. Just win. Do something with your on the field product, man. And, and by do the way, something. what are, what are the Galaxy getting from all that international recognition? What benefit is that giving to them? Nothing. Well, I mean, Nothing. it helps them bring guys in like Chicharito and Ibrahimovic. But yeah, to what and, and what is that getting them? Yeah, yeah man. Ibra was good. Don't blame Ibra for what he was been good. Going and on the Galaxy LA weren't. Galaxy. And the Galaxy weren't. Not Ibra's fault, my friend. He will tell you. Do you, you like that. the Anyways, name? Do you like the name and the logo? We I, haven't even gotten to that. I mean, the logo. I'm whatever about the name. I'm whatever about it. Doesn't I kind of like the name? Bother me. I, it's I'm okay weird. With it. It's super I liked weird. The name Montreal Impact. <laughs> I did I liked too. It. CF CF Montreal is like it's whatever to me, man. Honestly, to me, it makes them feel like like a Canadian Premier League team, man. Like they like now Whoa. you have to be like like is that an MLS team? Like I'm not quite sure that name. You know, weren't they? Wasn't isn't Montreal Impact the MLS team? That's what I think about that about rebranding. Dude, right now. Canadian Premier League—they have some funky names like Cavalry FC and York Nine. Yeah, my point like, is, is that like people are. Like people identified the impact in Montreal already. That was happening. Like that's a name that has history. The the impact's contention. Sorry, Montreal's contention is that they identified the impact as a minor league thing, right? Because the impact were in the minor leagues, the lower divisions for twenty years. So people think, oh, the impact that's just like a, a minor league thing. We don't take that seriously here. But CF Montreal has a long history of being a professional league, and now they'll know. That Club de Foot Montreal, that's a professional team, not a minor league team. That's a major league team because there are other CFs in the world. That's how I know it. It's that's brilliant. right. It's that's brilliant. right. They nailed it. He knows they it. Nailed it. He knows it. Um, thank you so much for listening to Allocation Disorder. I, I sincerely hope you made it to the end because that bit on Montreal was by far the best thing we did in this show. Um, and it came an hour and five minutes in. So sorry about that. Uh, but at least it was a good payoff. Anyway, I'm Sam Stasekel. He's Paul Tenorio. This has been Allocation Disorder brought to you by Arby's. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>